we begin our time together with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father and gracious God, we just thank you uh, for this opportunity once again to gather as your people. As we've heard through the worship, as we've heard through the exhortations already this morning, it is a blessing to gather. It is a blessing to gather because you gather us together. And Father, we know that as you gather us together, uh, you meet with us by your Spirit. And Father, we pray that uh, over the next 40 or so, so minutes that th- this would be no different, that you would meet with us, and that we will be blessed by your presence, we'll be blessed by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty. Okay, so this morning I have uh, the pleasure, as you probably know, of continuing in the second of, uh, out of four sermons where we're going to be covering this short topical series called uh, Unmissable Church. You can see it up on the screen, Unmissable Church. This series, uh, as you know, is based on uh, a book by the very same title. Uh, it's been written by pastors uh, Richard Sweatman and Anthony Barraclough. Uh, and last week, uh, Pastor Dave, he kicked off our series, didn't he? He kicked off our series with reference to the cultural backdrop, the cultural backdrop that church attendance is not only decreasing as a percentage of you know, the general population here in Australia, but much, much, much closer to home, uh, Dave walked us through the fact that even amongst self-described committed Christians, right, on average that we are only committing to about 68% of all the available opportunities for us to gather together, 68%. In other words, not only has general society dispensed with the, with the norm of gathering together as, as, a, as a church, but the research shows that even in, even in, the, in the hot spots of the gospel, in our local churches, we also have become somewhat lukewarm about the ancient practice of gathering consistently together. Dave then dived into, uh, I guess, five biblical metaphors from Scripture which talk about and uh, uh, for the purpose of renewing our love and our commitment to the church. He talked about the church as the gathering. He talked about the church as the temple. He talked about the church as family. He talked about the church as the body of Christ. And he talked about the church as the bride of Christ. And so what I want to do today is I want to I zoom in on one of those metaphors, firstly. I want to zoom in on one of those metaphors, that being the church as the gathering of God. And I want to walk through the, the biblical storyline um, to show you how this metaphor has developed over the biblical storyline. In other words, what I want to do is I want to present to you a biblical theology of gathering, a biblical theology of gathering. Then secondly, I want to take a look at one of Jesus' parables to bring to bear three different obstacles, three different obstacles that arises in our hearts. It arises in our hearts uh, as reasons against consistently gathering together. So the biblical theology first, and then three obstacles after that. Okay, to begin with, let's start with a survey of the biblical theology of gathering. 
Firstly, let me introduce you to two themes. There's two themes that I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this biblical theology of gathering. And they are the themes of scattering and the theme of gathering. Scattering and gathering. Firstly, you have the theme of scattering in the Bible or or, or separating in the Bible. God's action of scattering or, or, or separating uh, in the Bible uh, is, a, is a big theme. And, and, and what happens is that God's action of scattering or separating often occurs in the Bible in circumstances where there is like a, like there's a manifest incompleteness, uh, where there is the presence of sin or rebellion, or whether there is a broken situation. So that's that's where we normally see scattering occur. On the other hand, we have the opposite theme in Scripture of gathering. Gathering or bringing together or binding together. Often in the biblical storyline when God gathers or he brings things together, it's an act of blessing. When God gathers, it's an act of blessing. It's a, it's a symbol of fullness. It's a, a marker of completion. Think about it this way. You know, when the supplies in the barn are low, what does the farmer do? He goes out and he scatters the seed. When there is a manifest incompleteness in the barn, what does he go? He do? He goes out and he scatters seed. But when the season draws to the end and the harvest has bountifully arrived, what does the farmer do? He looks out over his field and he goes out and what does he do? He gathers the crop. He gathers the crop, which signifies completeness. It marks an end to the, to the season. Those are the two themes that I want to talk about, scattering and gathering. More so gathering, but I just want to give you those two categories. If you search through your Bible, you will find these scattering and gathering themes all throughout Scripture. I mean, even in the very first page of Scripture, in the very first page of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, What do we read? We read that the earth was without form and void. In other words, it was chaotic. There was no structure. There was a complete lack of order, a manifest incompleteness in the world, right? So what does God do? God speaks. He speaks into this empty void to create light. Then he separates out the waters to create heavens. But notice what he does in verse 9. This is really critical. To put the finishing structure, the finishing touch to the structure of the world, God says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered, be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Friends, this is the very first time in Scripture, the very first time in Scripture where God gathers He gathers. On the third day, he gathers the waters together into one place, into the the unity of the sea, and therefore the land appears. And, And this is why it's important. Because this action of gathering is the final thing, is the final thing that God does before there is an absolute explosion of life. First plant life, then aquatic life, then terrestrial life, and then, of course, human life. You see, friends, in the very first page of Scripture, we are already given 
a hint. We're given a hint, a bit of a sneak peek into the spiritual principle that gathering, that gathering is the precursor of life, the very foundations for the blessing of life. I mean, if you flip just a few pages forward in your Bible, flip to Genesis chapter 2. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, you have that same principle repeating again, right? In Genesis chapter 2, we see God describe for the very first time something that is not good. Okay, this is what God says. He looks upon the, the, the state of man and he says, It is not good that man should be alone. So there was no fitting companion for man. So what does God do in response to this manifest incompleteness? First, God separates out the rib from the man, and from that rib, he makes woman, and then he brings the woman to the man. In other words, he gathers them together, and from this union, from this God-ordained gathering, flows all human life. I mean, just imagine it for a second. It's a wonderful moment, isn't it? You have God... You have man and woman, and and probably you've got many living creatures just observing this phenomenon. Uh, And it's all happening in this uh, stunning backdrop of this beautiful garden. All whilst, remember this, the man and the woman, they were both naked. They're both naked and they were not ashamed. Put it another way, as God gathered all that he created together, it signified peace between God and humanity. It signified peace between all humans. It signified peace between humanity and creation. And it signified peace within us, right? Such peace that we could stand stark naked before each other and before God and feel no shame. Friends, this again tells us, again, this spiritual principle that there is great blessing That there is life in the very essence when God gathers together. You know, we know that this blissful gathering, this completeness in the world, it didn't last, did it? Both Eve and Adam, they ate the fruit. And at that very moment, true to the warnings of God, a a great scattering started to happen. It was set into motion, wasn't it? Just the other day, I, I knocked this beautiful glass cup off, um, off the coffee table at our house. And as I knocked it off this, this coffee table, and this coffee table wasn't awfully high, so as I knocked it, I was watching it kind of in slow motion fall to the ground. And I was just, there was this glimmer of hope within me that because it was just a very short coffee table, that it would just kind of bounce off the, 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 the floor and stay intact. But the moment, the moment that it made contact with the ground, like literally hundreds and hundreds of shards of glass just scattering and scurrying across the lounge room floor. And, that, and that's what effectively happened at that moment, just utter brokenness when they rebelled against God. It, it, it was like, you know when you watch a video in reverse motion? This is what happened. It was like reverse motion of the end of Genesis chapter 2. Immediately, the man and the woman, they felt they felt shame. They felt this brokenness within them. And, you know, is it any wonder that most of the time when we approach wild animals, right, 
they scurry away from us. That is just a phenomenon that just happens. And so it probably was the same at that moment in the Garden of Eden. You know, as my children's Bible puts it, at that moment that they rebelled against God, a dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted into the thicket. The man and woman, they themselves were scattered and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And when the man and woman were approached by God, their, their relational unity, their union was also broken. They tried to you know, pass the blame, didn't they? To put it quite simply, paradise was shattered. A profound scattering was now in effect, a deep brokenness in various dimensions, brokenness between God and us, a brokenness between our relationships, a brokenness between us and creation, a brokenness within us. Man from that moment was sent out. He was scattered from the Garden of Eden. And this scattering continued. We see this scattering at the Tower of Babel when when people try to make a name for themselves. God scattered them. Then God scattered the nation of Israel. He divided them into two, and then he further scattered them as the Assyrians came and invaded the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians came and invaded the southern kingdom. But this scattering is not without end. Even though we may look at the storyline of the Bible and we see these thousand scattered shards, desperately broken and seemingly irredeemable, God, in his mercy and in his grace, with outstretched arms, is able and willing to gather up again, to redeem what seems lost, to restore what is broken, to bring together what is scattered. You know, out of fallen humanity, we see God's heart to redeem and restore all through the biblical storyline, starting with the family of Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, from a couple of infertile nomads, God gathers up a family. And even when this family is scattered due to relational strife, God uses Joseph to gather up the family again. You know, and as this family grows and is oppressed by slavery in Egypt, God again gathers up this family using Moses, doesn't he? And as this family of tribes now enter into the promised land and they, and they struggle against the enemies to take possession of the land, God uses King David to gather them up into a nation. See this gathering effect? Do you know what I'm saying? This gathering effect through the biblical storyline. Now, And even when this nation turns and rebels against God, it's divided into two. The Assyrians come in. The Babylonians come in. I want you to listen to the heart of God through the prophets. This is what God says through the prophets. Isaiah 43, verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Jeremiah 29, 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. Ezekiel 20, verse 41, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out, from, gather you out from, of, the, of the countries where you have been scattered. This is just a, a tiny sample of all the verses through the prophets which talks about God's heart and God's promise 
to gather his people again. Now these promises, they're, they're partially fulfilled as a, as a remnant of Israel are, are brought out of those nations back into the land. And then they build the second temple under Nehemiah and Ezra. But we know that the gathering action of God is only partially fulfilled because when Jesus, when Jesus enters into the world, he continues to describe himself with these gathering metaphors, doesn't he? What does he call himself? He calls himself the good shepherd. He's the, he's the one that leaves the 99 to gather back that one lost sheep. Even when Jesus approaches the cross, Even as he approaches Jerusalem, this is what Jesus says with that same impulse, with that same aching desire to gather people to himself. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered, gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing In fact, this desire to gather together the children of God is what drives Jesus to the cross. This is what Jesus, um, this is what compels Jesus to be broken in our place. This is what John 11, verse 51 to 52 says. It says that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so it is that the proclamation of Christ crucified to the end of the age is the rallying call. It is the rallying call of God to gather us back to him, to bring our brokenness to him, to have our scattered lives brought and redeemed and restored by him. And you know, at the end of the age... We will be gathered together with people from every tribe and language and nation and people. We're all racial, we're all emotional, we're all relational, and even physical brokenness will be restored in full. Now, I know that this has been a rather long introduction uh, to the biblical theology of gathering, But I feel it's a necessary one. I feel it's a necessary one because the Lord wants to impress upon our hearts that his movements of gathering throughout history, they're not random. They're not unconnected events, right? No, God's action of gathering is his sweeping motion to redeem, to restore, and to bring life back to the full. I want us to see that there is blessing in the gathering, and I want, us, I, want to, I want us to see that the gathering is a blessing. I want us to see that to be gathered here, right here today, is faith and hope. It's an expression of faith and hope of that final gathering. And finally, I want us to see in today's scripture passage that it's a fearful, it's a fearful and dangerous thing to resist God's purpose for us in gathering together. I want us to see today that this human heart, that the human heart, my heart, uh, whether it's 2,000 years ago, today, or the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the human heart always is inclined to resist God's purposes for us 
to gather together. There are some, there are some age-old reasons or excuses that our hearts manifest against gathering together. And so without further ado, let's read the passage for today. It comes from Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. 1 to 14. Should be on your screen. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many a cord, but few are chosen. Few are chosen. Now the first thing that must be said about this parable is that it clearly points to the final gathering. I just want to be clear about that. It talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the invited guests who refuse to gather are clearly those who ultimately and tragically will be excluded forever from that glorious final feast. And in Jesus' context, he was most likely speaking to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, I want to say all this just to clarify that I am not using this parable to say that if you fail to come to church on any given week, right, you are equivalent to one of those unworthy guests. I don't want you to get that impression at all. But what I do want to highlight is that there are certain themes that can be gleaned from this parable which uncover some of the underlying human tendencies that cause us to be complacent or have an aversion to coming to God's ordained gathering. Okay, the first spiritual principle, the first obstacle per se that rises up in our hearts and impedes us from God's gathering can be found in verse number five. Have a look at verse number five. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business. You see, friends, as much as we make out that we live in a new generation, in a new culture, with new temptations, that we live life at a new and unprecedented pace, these, these factoids only just distract us from the truth that there is truly, there's truly nothing new under the sun. The heart of the problem at the end of the day is always the human heart. 
no iPhone, no Uber Eats, no Zoom calls, no Westfield, no kids sport, yet they still paid no attention and went one to his farm and another to his business. Not like us. We've got many different options, don't we? For them, just two options. Just two options of higher priorities than God's priority. They've got a rural option, off to the farm. They've got an urban option, off to the business. But the heart of the issue remains the same, doesn't it, friend? God's priority failed to be their priority. He calls us to gather, and so often our inclination is to scatter to the things which we think are more important. Let me read out some of the main reasons for opting out of gathering that Sweatman and Barracloth identify in their research uh, in the book, which, which hits exactly on this point. Holidays, tiredness, busyness, family activities, sports and, and kids' sports, business, including work-related travel, shopping, the weather is too, too hot or too cold, and this is my personal favorite, car club outings. Car club outings, love it. You, you know, the interesting thing, you know, when I was reading the commentaries around this passage in Matthew, was that with a wedding feast like this, in Jewish culture of the day, what would happen is that an initial invite would go out. An initial invite would go out, the host would send out an initial invite, and, um, but that initial invite would not have a set date for the feast. There wasn't a set date for the feast. What would happen is the host, in the meantime, would go back and get everything ready for the feast. And then when everything was ready, he would again send out messengers, send out messengers to say, everything is ready. It's time to come. Right? And it's at, actually at this point, Jesus picks up the parable. It's at this point that Jesus picks up the parable. So everyone who effectively was being called in the parable to come to the feast, they already had said yes to the invitation, right? All they really had to do now was to come good on their RSVP, right? But in one sense, it's easier said than done, isn't it? You don't know when the host is going to be ready. You've got family nights on Monday. You've got me time on Tuesday. On Wednesday, you've got book club. Thursday is catch up on Netflix. Fridays, you've got date night. Saturday, you've got soccer. And of course, Sunday, car club outings, right? <laughs> you know, how inconsiderate is it that this host holds a wedding feast without a fixed date and you're expected to rock up on short notice? How inconsiderate. My friends, is this not the very essence of, it, of what it means to call Jesus our Lord? We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my life as it is in heaven. We declare with Paul from Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God tells the waters to gather and they become the unity of the sea. But when, when God calls us to gather, gather together, we say, not today, I'm busy. Oh friends, part and parcel of really calling Jesus our Lord 
and being in a posture of readiness for his final coming is taking seriously the call for us to gather here and now together frequently and consistently until he finally gathers us together. Friends, I want you to listen to the sobering words of our Lord Jesus. Listen to these words. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Listen to these words. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And I guess the question that begs to be asked of us is if week in, week out, month after month, we are lukewarm about the practice of gathering together as God's people, can we honestly say that we would have confidence that we will suddenly be ready, that we'll be suddenly filled with zeal for that final day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns? And that is why the writer of Hebrews minces not his words when he tells us very pointedly that the practice of neglecting to gather, the practice of neglecting to gather is best called a habit. A habit, a really dangerous habit. You know, we heard in the Zealous Conference earlier this year that apathy and a lack of zeal, it does not just appear overnight, does it? In the parable of the sower, remember the weeds that represent the cares of the world? They don't wrap their life-sucking vines around us in just a single day. It doesn't happen like that. No, it happens slowly, but surely. Little decision by little decision. Compromise after compromise. You know, I love the story of Eric Liddell uh, in the book that we're looking at. It says that Liddell was hot favorite to win the 100-meter sprint gold medal for Great Britain at the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. As he was boarding the boat for Paris, he learnt that his heat was scheduled for a Sunday. Because of his Christian convictions around competing on the Sabbath, Liddell refused to compete, a decision that would eliminate him from any chance of the gold medal. He faced enormous pressure to reverse his decision from the British Olympic Committee and even also from the, from the, from the Prince of Wales. Despite these seemingly irresistible attempts at persuasion, Liddell stood his ground and gave up on the gold medal. What devotion to Christ. You see, you see, what Eric Liddell effectively did, whether you agree or not with his position on the Christian Sabbath, is that he dared not risk dulling his appetite for that final glorious day, for that final glorious gathering, by even missing a single Sunday with the gathered saints. Friends, this was a this, this, this was more precious to him than even the gold medal. Okay, obstacle number two. Let's look at the second obstacle to gathering, which is alluded to in this parable. This is what it says in verse six. While the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. You know, the parable doesn't go into much detail about what is clearly observed, uh, but what is clearly observed here is that the, is that the servants invite guests to come to the feast, but as they do this, there is somehow a dramatic breakdown in relationship. It's, it's actually quite hyperbolic. 
Now, of course, the, the primary interpretation for this conflict is the persecution endured by the Old Testament prophets as they invited people to come. And really, it extends to anyone who is shamefully treated for the witness of the gospel. But I think it also points to the broader reality that broken relationships can, can be very much a real obstacle for some of us to gathering. I mean, it wouldn't be a far stretch to kind of imagine in this parable that some of the, the guests, as they journey towards the wedding feast, there arose conflict amongst them. There was somehow this breakdown of relationships as they traveled to this wedding feast. In one sense, it would be somewhat remiss of us to think that such conflict and relational complexity only exist outside the wars of the church. Particularly as we all know, the church is still, at the end of the day, a gathering of sinners. You know, the obstacle to gathering is real, friends. This is what the book lists out as several examples of such. They include broken friendships at church, right? Grievance with a leader, an unbelieving spouse, lack of friends or a sense of isolation at church, and the effects of divorce. And so what I really want to highlight here is that these relational tensions, these complexities that we bring with us and we experience in the midst of our gathering, it shouldn't surprise us. Let me just give you a few examples from the New Testament church about the wide range of conflicts that we saw. Right? In Acts, you've got Paul and Barnabas. They have a sharp disagreement on whether to bring John Mark to the next missionary trip. In Romans, people are judging one another about what they should and shouldn't eat and what they should be doing on different days. In the Corinthian church, we've got factions gathering around different leaders and, and they're suing each other also in the church. In the Philippian church, there's a disagreement between two women, Eodia and Syntyche. Uh, in Ephesus, there's opposition to Timothy's leadership. And in the church of Jerusalem, James mentions fights and quarrels amongst Christians. Friends, this is very much a reality of church life, of gathering together in the here and now as we journey to that final gathering. But you know, we must also remember that our gathering is the very place where God has ordained for us to work out, to work through, and to grow from these experiences. In our gathering is where we grow and learn to bear with one another. It's where we grow in the practice of godly forgetfulness. It's where we get to put into action the gospel concept of keeping no record of wrongs. In our gatherings is where the gospel provides really fertile ground for us to gently confront one another about each other's sins and to foster this culture of forgiveness. In our gathering is where we have faith, where we exercise faith that friendships, and I've seen it all across the church, friendships spring up in unexpected places, right? It's where we go that extra mile, always holding out hope for friendship, even, even if it's not reciprocated. In our gathering is where we can safely humble ourselves before each other, to bring the, the messiness of our marital situations and our family situations so that we can lean on others for support and love. You know, overall though, what I really want to drive home in this point is that there is a very, there's a very real temptation for us to 
kind of see all these relational complexities and difficulties and even the ones that we bring into church. We see all that and, and we think, I'm just going to shrink back from it all, right? That's the real temptation. But it really comes back to what I was saying in the biblical theology piece. When God gathers, there is blessing and there is life in the blessing. As he gathers, he restores, he, rest, he redeems, he binds up. Of course, not perfectly, not perfectly in this life. But listen, he does this most manifestly in the church gathering. And so the question for us all is whether we have faith that he will do in our gatherings this redeeming work, even in the face of the relational difficulties and complexities that we see in church life. Okay, the third and final obstacle that some of us might face to gathering consistently and frequently is the heavy stumbling block of feeling unworthy to gather. Feeling unworthy to gather. Perhaps it's the, it's the feeling of guilt before God, like the guilt that weighed heavy on King David's heart in Psalm 51, or like Adam and Eve, the guilt that caused them to scatter and hide before God. Or maybe it's like Peter. It's like Peter, right, who, who cried out as he realized who Jesus was. He says, depart from me, from, for I am a sinful man. Perhaps it's the shame that we feel before others, maybe a specific sin that we might have committed around other people. Perhaps it's, uh, it's the guilt from a, a, a fallout or a breakdown in relationships with others at church. Perhaps it's simply, you know, sometimes we can get into this vicious cycle of the guilt of not coming to church, therefore we avoid coming to church, therefore we feel more guilty about not coming to church. Perhaps it's the profound anxiety associated with gathering with so many people. I think there is sometimes a real risk of even panic attacks as we think about gathering together as, uh, as such a large group of people. Perhaps it's an acute awareness that you have of difficulties that you might have navigating certain social interactions that occur as we gather. Perhaps it's your struggle with mental health issues or the stigma that comes to make you feel unworthy together. But friends, let me, let me direct our eyes to verses 8 to 10 of the parable. This is, this is what the king This is what the host of the feast then did after the original guests refused to gather. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Let me ask you, church, where and to whom were the servants now sent to go? Where were they sent to go? They were sent to go to the main roads. To the main roads. You know that term means literally to the street corners. To the street corners, right? To put it quite bluntly, they were sent to gather up the riffraff. The riffraff. The nobodies. Right? They gathered, quote, all whom they found, both bad and good. Did you catch that? They were sent to gather up both the bad and the good. They literally gathered up the riffraff of the city. 
You know, instinctively, this is how we all think the parable should read. We think that the story should have been like this. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the decent suburbs and invite them to the wedding feast. And those servants went out and gathered all the good people they could find. So the wedding hall was filled with virtuous guests. Friends, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. By the grace of God, this is not what Jesus said. The invitation has now been extended to both the bad, the so-called bad, and the so-called good. In fact, the parable is implicitly suggesting at this point that those who do respond to come are worthy guests. And, and yet, they include both the bad and the good people. The, the worthy but bad and the good people? I mean, how can that possibly be? And the answer is that those who are willing to gather at the feast are worthy simply on the basis that they are willing to gather. They are not worthy because they are bad or they're good, but simply because they are willing to gather. They are willing to come to Christ with all their unworthiness, with all their baggage of sin, with all their brokenness. They know they they are sick. They know that they are damaged, but they cannot possibly turn down the offer of the royal invite. And therefore, they are worthy simply because they are willing to come. Oh, friends, is this not the very essence of the gospel? Verse 4. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And then again in verse 8. The wedding feast is ready. All things are ready. This is the message of the gospel. Come and feast on oxen you have not reared. Come and dine on fattened cars for which you have not paid. Come and stay in rooms which you have not prepared. Everything is ready. This, my friends, is the gospel invitation. And this, my friends, is the heart of the core that goes out week after week in our local church gatherings. Come again and feast upon the gospel. Come with your baggage. Come with your guilt. Come with your brokenness. Come in your weakness. And in God's upside-down economy, the unworthiness which brought you here is what makes you worthy to come. Friends, let's make it a habit of ours to keep gathering as the riffraff of God, as the nobodies of God, each and every week as we gather on Sundays, as we gather in our midweek gospel communities. Let us be like excitable children holding yet another dress rehearsal for that final glorious gathering of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I should really finish up here. But my hope, my hope is that I haven't in any way given you some legalistic argument for upping your attendance. I really hope your takeaway isn't, I really got to get my attendance up. I got to get it up above 68% so I can sit above the Sydney average. I, I don't want that to be the case. May that not be your takeaway. I really hope that you see that as God gathers us 
together, it is for the purpose of making us complete. It is for the purpose of making us whole. It is, the purpose, it is for the purpose of giving us life. May this vision of God's gathering allow us to overcome the obstacles of our, uh, of our self-centered priorities, overcome the obstacle of relational difficulties, overcome the obstacle of feeling unworthy. You know, at the end of this parable, the, the king... The king comes out. The king comes out, right? And he, he looks at all the guests. He looks at all the guests, and he notices that there's a man. He's got no wedding garment on. And he orders the man to be bound up and to be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, when I first read this, I thought, oh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? But then... But then it dawns upon us. It dawns upon us the, the reality of this man's situation. The reality of this man's situation. He's, he's arrived at the king's wedding feast. At the king's wedding feast. In honor of the crown prince's son. He's come to the king's wedding feast. Quite literally an unchanged man. An unchanged man. To frame it in terms of today's sermon, this man, for this man, his priorities in his life continue to remain his own self-centered personal priorities. You know, when he faced relational difficulties, he did not persevere through them. He did not grow through these relational difficulties, but more often than not, he just walked away from them. And so quite frankly, in and of himself, he now rocks up to the king's feast feeling quite justified, quite worthy in and of himself to come in his unchanged, indifferent state. You know, more likely than not, more likely than not, he never really fancied all those dress rehearsals that would have prepared him Oh, so well for that glorious day. And so is it any wonder that he rocks up on that day as an unchanged man? But friends, let that not be us. Have faith that life is found when God gathers us together. Have faith that there is blessing in the gathering. Have faith that we, every time we meet, get a taste of that coming fullness of that final gathering. You know, because what God gathers together, what God gathers together, what God hath joined together, let man not put asunder. Let's pray. Father God, we stand here today. We, we are here today just so blessed to be gathered in your presence. And so often we look to our personal priorities and we are tempted to think those are the highest priorities. But Father, we just pray that you would give us a grand vision now that your priorities are for our good. They are the highest blessing that we have. And as we look out to see all the relational difficulties that we have in the midst of our church, Father, we pray that even in the midst of them that you meet us and you restore in the midst of them. And Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. 
so much for the gospel that you invite the unworthy to come. And so we come today in gladness and in hope of that final gathering. In his name we pray. Amen.